welcome to Heineken Rugby Weekly on the 42.ie. If you don't know the drill at this stage, every week we bring you behind the lines with expert analysis, tactical insights and engaging conversation around the international and club season. Our expert analysts will ask the hard questions and answer any you might have each Thursday. We'll also have a feature interview with some of the biggest names and most interesting characters in the game. Uh, Mike Prendergast will be chatting to Murray later on. Looking forward to that. If you want to get more from the game, join Heineken Rugby Club whose members enjoy exclusive rewards like match tickets and more, visit heinekenrugbyclub.com and remember to enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit drinkaware.ie uh, for how to do so. My own name is Gavin Casey. I'm joined in studio here by Murray Kinsel of the 42.e. How are you, Murray? I'm not too bad. How are you, Gav? Very well, thank you. We're also joined by Andy Dunn. How are you, Andy? I'm great, thanks. Excellent. Sure, we'll kick off. So, um, interesting topic of conversation at the moment, painkillers in rugby. Brian Driscoll was talking about it on off the ball, he described how he, well, his consumption of diphene almost became habit. Uh, there have been many, well, I wouldn't say many, but a few columns written about this in recent times. It's also been referenced in player autobiographies in the past, but it, it seems to be only kind of coming to the fore properly now. Um, it's a difficult one to actually even kind of, I don't know what the first question is here, but it, firstly, do you perceive it to be a problem, Murray? Or what's your interpretation of it? Yeah, I, I think you'd want anyone in any walk of life not to have to take painkillers to do their job. Um, like we were just talking just before we came on air about how a lot of people just in, in everyday life are taking painkillers to get through the day. I, some of my, I don't know, people, friend, family, friends and things just have sore knees, whatever, uh, need painkillers to get through the day. So I don't think it it really shocks me that, that a rugby player has had that history as well. However, I do think it'll be eye-opening for quite a few people. Um, and the temptation then is to, to draw <clears> bigger comparisons um, and say, is this um, should this be legal in sport? Should you be allowed to take painkillers just to get on the pitch and play to the, the max of your ability? Um, Andy, I'd be interested in your opinion just as a physio. Like, mm. I, I guess it's probably changed since Brian was playing even. Even he referenced that himself, the fact that this probably isn't the common thing anymore, really. Well, firstly, I think Brian should be commended. I thought he was really honest. I thought he spoke very sincerely, and um, and I don't think he he did it in any in any sense to try and whip up a kind of a storm. He was just being frank, and um, he, you know, the one area that I think will have changed from what Brian mentioned. I I, I think first of all, it's it is legal to take a painkiller, it's fine, um, or certain types of painkillers. So you're talking about low-level, over-the-counter painkiller tablets you buy in a chemist for soreness, stiffness. Um, and I think Brian referenced that it was largely the older players who are carrying knocks, who have more mileage on the clock, and and that's fine. I, where I think things would have changed from a medical point of view is is as as research has developed, for example, into anti-inflammatories and the use of those. They shouldn't be taken in the absence of inflammation. I mean, Brian would have taken the painkillers and so would many of his peers and I would have done it myself as a player because you're in a little bit of pain. Um, if you're in significant pain, there's no chance you're playing a rugby match. You're not able to. So if you're in low-level pain because of the physical exertion from the previous week or from training, I think it's fine. Where you don't, what you don't want to do is to start popping diphene. Um and and as much as that's a problem or was a problem in rugby, if you go into any golf club around the country and meet a bunch of 50 and 60 year olds, they're taking what's called like a prophylactic. It's a protective diving, just it makes me feel better and get through. That ought not to be the case uh, ever. These these tablets are not good for your stomach health. They're not good for you um, and they ought to be used sparingly. And I think as uh, med you know, medicine has advanced, um, so has the experience for medical teams and they're very, very cagey and reluctant to prescribe anti-inflammatories unless there is an inflammation present. And if they do prescribe, they prescribe sparingly and responsibly. So I think that's that's my view from a healthcare professional's point of view. Anything can be abused in any situation, but ultimately I, I thought Brian was really honest and should be commended for it. And I don't think there's an underlying, I know Paul Kimmage has written an article saying, you know, it's the, the, the hidden issue that's the, the the dark underbelly of rugby you know painkillers to get through games I don't think that's the case I think that's a, a bit of a quantum leap from where Ryan was was uh, mm. talking from It was interesting that the international rugby players did that survey with Rugby World magazine kind of across 350 international players and, and what the kind of issues were for them and 
one of the big things again that came up was players are quite concerned about the level of contact in training mm. um, and there was an anonymous quote from a player just talking about how they feel there's enough contact from, at the weekend and that that's a regular enough occurrence of the contact to, to, to survive that I couldn't agree more I mean um, the the old school there was it was kind of Leicester Tigers the Welford Road rite of passage you train with us you know we train harder than we play and blah 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 it doesn't last and professional careers are, are no longer going to be 10 to 15 years they're going to become similar to NFL 3 to 4 year careers because if you you know you just cannot withstand the level of physical contact that's happening on a Saturday and try and replicate that on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. It's nonsensical. Mm. You say professional careers will become three or, like spanning only three or four years as in you foresee that happening oh, as things stand. A hundred percent. Yeah. You you know, the the game has become more popular. Um there are you know, when I played I had I had ten year career and I played a hundred matches because I kept getting injured. But that'll never happen again because there's 10 guys lining up. There was one guy lining up behind me. I'd have been sacked out after six months. Now that will happen. A guy will get injured and there's three guys, four guys willing to take his place. The game has become a bit more, um, well, higher numbers, higher participation, greater popularity. So, um, and a higher injury profile across the board. So when you add all those things into account, I think you will, I think you'll see a lot of, 15 to 20 cap international careers a lot of three to four year professional careers um, and then you know the days of Paul O'Connell and, and O'Driscoll and Stringer and Darcy which is 15 to 20 year careers I think is, is gone Talk to me about the kind of moral issue here if there is one in your opinion when it comes to painkillers because there are so many things you can take I mean you me- you mentioned mm. say the prophylactic uh, anti-inflammatories yeah. there which I wouldn't have been aware of but say in a sport like rugby where you're a your ability to tolerate pain is obviously crucial, right? Yes. So if you are taking something more effective in allowing you to tolerate pain versus somebody who, say, isn't taking painkillers or is taking something weaker, are you then not doping? Because you are going to be able to perform better than this person based on the substances you've consumed. Yeah, the the dosage and the type of painkiller um, will, I suppose, will exactly kind of relate to the pain levels and how you can dull it. So there are there are many painkillers which are banned and, you know, there's there's levels, there's above opioids, there's higher level painkillers that you see people post-surgically taking, you know, immediately after surgery, they're in a lot of pain. So there's there's obviously a graded scale. Um, my experience, um, both as a player and as, as a physio worker, having worked with teams, is that it's... Um, it's low level over the counter painkillers that are taken and and I think that's perfectly acceptable my uh, the prophylactic anti-inflammatory like an anti-inflammatory should be taken in when there's inflammation to help dull inflammation and that again is perfectly legal the issues are there's there's a, there's a behavioral issue there's there's responsibility on medical staff to educate players um, but there is a behavioral issue around I'm going to pop a pill take a painkiller take an anti-inflammatory um, just make sure I get through that's probably more psychological for a player that he, he, he feels better about himself going into the game and that's horrific he shouldn't be thinking that way so that again requires education and instruction and guidance and again something like what Brian has done will further highlight that it's like the concussion question nobody has it perfect but we're learning we're all kind of stepping our way through it in a, in a game that is recently professional, less than just under 20 years. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there are absolutely there are dangers and there are risks and there will always be those who cross the line and hopefully there are not too many and they and if they, they do cross it, they're found out through uh, testing um, and, and the testing seems to be frequent and rigorous. In the Southern Hemisphere this morning, a bit of disappointing news for the Pacific Islands. Uh, there was talk of them getting a, uh, well, a kind of a, an amalgamation or a team, wasn't it, with, with the three islands uh, to form a club in Super Rugby, but that has been rejected uh, on commercial grounds, from what I've read. Yeah, it's just a, p- a pity we want to touch on it. Obviously, we want a global game, we want to grow the game as much as possible, and this seemed like a really positive um, uh, kind of idea the three nations coming together for 2021 season it would have been having a super rugby team keeping the players at home because there's no one more exploited really than the, the three islands in terms of the player um outflux and and going over to france going over to different countries even going to the uk and schools and stuff now um 
So it would have been massively beneficial for Fijian, Samoan, Tongan rugby because you, you see how talented these these countries are. You know, Fiji beating France in November was an incredible result. You can only imagine what they'd achieve with everyone based at home, uh, a lot of prep time together. Um, obviously, commercially, it didn't make sense because the, the TV uh, interest or the TV money uh, from the Pacific Islands wouldn't have been enough um, and there certainly just isn't the, the funds within those three unions, unfortunately, to, to fund a, a team every year. They're looking at about $12 million, I think, per season. I know they were looking for private investment. Unfortunately, that didn't come. Um, but I guess it's going to get to the point where the onus is on World Rugby to to come up with a lot of that funding. Now, they do, they provide all the funds to the Pacific Island Nations, essentially, at the moment. Um, but if you want to grow the game beyond those probably guaranteed World Cup quarter finalists, then some stage you have to make that leap um, and have to f- like reroute some money, use some of the funding that goes elsewhere and, and build those nations to, to a level where they can actually compete in World Cups w- with the natural talent they have. You would think that that's very possible. Um, so yeah, disappointment this time, but fingers crossed it's it's not the end of the, the project there. Yeah, that's the big hope really is that it, it doesn't go away, Andy, I think, isn't it? Like they should persevere with it and, and look to explore it again as rigorously as possible. Yeah, I think... They they have a massive value to add to the game. Uh, all the Pacific Islands, their their skill levels, their even as as individuals, what guys I would have played with, particularly over in England, um, the South Sea Islander lads coming in, they're they're unfortunately get a bit typecast for their aggressive defence and their high tackling things, but they're very physical guys, but they're hugely skillful. They're very durable. Um, to to see them. Uh, I would love ultimately to see them funded and funded heavily and have a Pacific Nations involvement maybe together. It was tried, I remember Paddy Wallace, uh, his first cap was against mm, the Pacific, Pacific Islands. Pacific Islands and we put about 60 points on them, but it was a long time ago, 10 years ago. But the sum of their parts surely is greater than Tonga on their own or Fiji on their own. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure there would be individual national pride with each of them and say when you see Fiji doing what they did in Paris true, too, it's... True. But and as you mentioned, it it is a long time ago. It's a difficult one to kind of figure out. Like as in, it makes sense at Super Rugby level because that's where you get the amalgamation. You can still have your national uh, team and, and the pride, but you're you're feeding out of that core group that essentially is your three national squads brought together um, and those top tier players. Like it's happened in the NRC in in Australia. The the Fijian team in in that competition actually won it. Um, this year so in the Australian domestic the, yeah the national rugby championship okay so that's been a really positive yeah. development and it just shows with a bit of organisation and again a bit of funding that we can make these positive steps so fingers crossed uh, it keeps moving in the right direction Clive Woodward wrote in his uh, Daily Mail column recently how gutted he was that England had spurned the opportunity to keep Andy Farrell within their ranks and, and cultivate his uh, prodigious coaching talents and there have been similar remarks made or you know a similar discussion happening regarding some of the uh, key figures within the realm of Irish rugby this week Brendan Cannon the former Australian hooker has called for them to uh, has called for the Wallabies rather to recruit David Nusifora uh, and there's been talk obviously of England coming back in for Stuart Lancaster as well um, I start with New Sephora firstly to the casual observer who who maybe isn't in tune with, with his everyday workings and what he's done so far what kind of a job has New Sephora done since arriving what four years ago? 2014 yeah essentially he's the first guy who's been in that role performance director um, like before you, you've probably heard Eddie O'Sullivan talking about uh, you know going to a, a group of kind of blazers and trying to explain his coaching decisions to guys who didn't really understand what was going on so I think the creation of that role was really positive for Irish rugby because it got someone in who had head coaching experience, who was involved as a kind of performance director in Australia as well, who had worked right across the game and was still very much in touch with modern trends. On top of that, he had an existing relationship with Joe Schmidt from the Blues. Um, and he suppose he's done a lot of Joe's dirty work, essentially, in, in terms of negotiating, being a pretty hard negotiator, uh, probably making quite a few enemies along the way. And, and certainly he's rubbed some people up the wrong way and and frustrated other other elements of the game but if you look at the success of Irish rugby and the where the system is now uh, compared to even when he came in um you'd have to say he's been a major success even unpopular moves like moving players generally have worked out really well he he likes talking about John Cooney 
uh, and the success they've had up in Ulster with him because that Ruin Pienaar decision was so controversial. But generally, those things have worked out really well for him. I would say there's also elements of Australian rugby who would not like to see him return because his his era there didn't end too well and uh, that's happened in a couple of places with him. But uh, for the job he's required to do in Ireland, I think he's the perfect guy. He's extremely um, hard-nosed. He doesn't have any problem with doing that dirty work with frustrating people. He's a very hard negotiator, as I said, as well. Um, and I can see why someone like Brendan Cannon would come out and go, you know, why don't we have this guy in charge of Australian rugby at a time when it's in a real mess and, and the system, the overall system is is really struggling and the Wallabies' form or lack of is really a product of that. So, yeah, News 4 has done a really good job here um, while maybe not being the most popular guy. Yeah, would you go along with that, Andy? Not the most popular guy. Yeah, cheeky uh, smirking Andy's face here. Well, no, I I think his his impact is overrated. I think um, I think it's to be to be acknowledged. Okay, like the the moves, the likes of Cooney going up to Connacht as an Irish uh, player who was not being utilised. He was put in ahead of Ruin. Uh, well, Ruin Pinar wasn't recontracted, and ultimately. Um, it's been an, it's been a, a masterstroke, really. You got an Irish and an indigenous player developed through our system, now actively contributing and hopefully going to contribute to the run up to a World Cup. Um, so I think that is absolutely to be recognised as a, as a brilliant move. But he, you know, he he kind of inherited a Goldilocks situation in professional rugby. He didn't centralise contracts. Like that was on ninety five. The reason rugby. Is, is running so smoothly is because 20 years ago there was a masterstroke not to make Corcan, Young Munster, Dungannon, Balamina professional outfits like was done in the Premiership in England. Um, and we couldn't sustain that and with four provinces we had our moments but ultimately it was a, that was the genius behind why Irish rugby is now so strong. And you add into that the school system, the academy systems, they were all in place before Nusifora arrived. Um, his appo- I don't know, did he he didn't appoint Joe Schmidt either, did he as no, Irish he coach? Come in a year later, so he? he also inherited one of the best coaches in the world who's developed the Irish national team. So when you add in all the things he didn't have control over that he inherited, you would maybe ask, surely a performance director ought to be doing pretty well in the situation he inherited. And I think there's multiple CEOs around the country who run good businesses based on performance and make them better. Um, and there are many who could do a similar, if not better, job, who whether they have a rugby background or not. Okay, where where are his shortcomings then, if, if people could do a better job in his role? Or are you talking more generally about businesses, rather? No, I'm talking in general. I okay. think uh, I'm not disputing he hasn't, I'm not saying he's done a bad job. I'm saying his input may be overrated or his effectiveness may be, like, how much influence has he had on our current success? I'm not so sure. I just think there was a lot in place there for him. And um, I think one of his key... Um, impressive decisions was the likes of Cooney going to Ulster um, but that's your job you're a performance director so you know he hasn't structurally changed anything in Irish rugby of significance it was all there in the first place Yeah I'd say the areas that you could point a finger at him around are certainly club rugby mm. um, certainly in a lot of clubs around Ireland there's real unhappiness with how he's I don't know managed club rugby and at the moment we don't know what the future of the AIL is really his proposal was essentially that it was part of his professional structure and that's you get the sense that's all he really wants from it and maybe doesn't have that understanding of the importance of the community element of it bringing people into the game also the women's 15s program there's been a lot of unhappiness there as well it's essentially amalgamated with the sevens program one one main women's program encompassing the two codes of the game and and certainly that's not gone down well with Mm. a lot of people there's a sense that the 15s game is almost being phased out and that sevens is the future for women's rugby and certainly there's I guess you can point to to some some decisions like 15s players getting pulled out of the Six Nations um, at certain stages. So there's certainly aspects that could be could be improved. Um, yeah, and it's never going to be perfect. Also, he'll he'll be judged on the World Cup because the 2015 World Cup, which I guess is only a year into his his tenure, didn't go particularly well. And and the efforts that they've been making himself and Joe, essentially they work as a team. Um, have been to build the depth that was lacking the last time around. So if the 2019 World Cup goes as well, then I think he can be pretty happy with that top level of his performance while there are elements, of, you know, in the grassroots game that are probably concerning. 
Stuart Lancaster would want to be clinically insane to take the England job again, wouldn't he? <laughs> I'll yeah. throw that one to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I personally think he would. Uh, it just, it seems like it would completely lack the security that, that he has in his current job. Um, and he's obviously been linked to Bath again. Again, I, you know, they, they're turning over so many coaches. It doesn't seem like a club that has the kind of solid foundations that Leinster and, and mm. Irish rugby have that Andy just spoke about there. So if I was advising him, I'd say stay where you are. Mm. Yeah. At a certain point, do, do you feel as though there's an appetite there on Lancaster's behalf to be the kind of main man again, be it at club or international level? Like it, it, the kind of, in on paper, it's a secondary role that he has on Leinster. Obviously, he works in tandem with, with Cullen and has done a fantastic job. But after the debacle that was the 2015 Rugby World Cup and the way in which he was treated by some factions within English rugby I just got the impression that maybe he was okay to take a step back and have an influence more so behind the scenes with the team than being front and centre. Yeah, well, he's spoken honestly and openly about that. The fact that he has enjoyed being on the pitch coaching, not managing all those head coach, kind of director rugby type jobs. Um, and that he's really enjoyed working with young players and bringing them through and certainly doing a good job with the production line in Leinster. Um, yeah, I guess it's a personal decision as well. Like he, he does have his family back in in the UK, and he's traveling a lot at the moment. It doesn't seem to bother him. He hasn't been complaining about her, um, you know, in, in that regard. And and you don't know what's going to go on off the pitch that way. So we don't have that insight. But I think just in terms of his job satisfaction, he seems to be really happy with what he's doing in Leinster. Are they barking up the wrong tree? So England, Andy, do you reckon? Um, yeah. Well, I suppose when you see Joe Schmidt being a Kiwi and maybe a longing after time to go back to New Zealand you can understand an Irish man like Conor O'Shea maybe ultimately wanting to coach in Ireland maybe there's something in there for Stuart in, in the future where he'd like to come back go back and, and right the wrongs and I think he was very much wronged and massively over criticised and, and hyperbole in the national press going after him um, he he had a he did a tremendous job with England right up until that World Cup and, and a few bad calls the Sam Burgess thing was thrown in his face the own foul um, Burgess has come out in support of him of yeah course, since. yeah absolutely and and uh, I I have rarely if maybe maybe if ever have I heard players uh, speak about a guy both reverentially which they do about Joe Schmidt but also so fondly like they speak about Lancaster like they just think he's a great guy and an amazing coach yeah Burgess said great man like great like men great, have lost their jobs because yeah. of the way some of the players uh, yeah and he's, he's he seems to be without ego Um, it never was an issue for him to come in and be an understudy to Leo there's never been a power struggle there they never they've worked in tandem brilliantly um, and he did a brilliant interview with Joe Malloy about a year ago when he was asked about why did he take the Leinster job and he said he had had a phone call with Wayne Bennett, the legendary rugby league coach, and Bennett advised him that whatever job he took after, I suppose, the despondency of the England situation, Bennett said, whatever your job you go for next, make sure they really want you and make sure you really want it. And if either of those things are askew, it's not going to work for you. And he said Leinster came after him strong. The players, you know, famously Sexton Ryan, the senior players were in touch. They wanted to make it work and he wanted to come and do it. And I think it's it's a bit of a match made in heaven at the moment to to even consider going to a place like Bath, which is a joke at the moment. It is like it's my brother mentioned it to me recently, he says like Downton Abbey. They're you know, <laughs> they're they're literally secluded up in this rich country house with loads of infighting and, you know, they they've had a bizarre situation where they wrote a letter to their public on their website discussing how Todd Blackadder is going to step down as coach when he feels Stuart Hooper's ready, who's going to be his understudy, and they wanted transparency. It was the most bizarre letter I've heard, mm. I've read in a professional sporting situation. For Stuart to go in there would be madness. A guy like Bruce Craig running it, you know, it's, yeah. it's they're actually, mayhem. They're Downton Abbey character names as well, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Avoid. Yeah. The wreck is a little bit Downton Abbey as well, by the way. It's very, uh, very retro. Um, Speaking of uh, coaches working abroad, Murray, you caught up with Mike Prendergast of Stade Francais. Yeah, he's been in France for uh, since 2013 now with Grenoble and Oyonnax last season and um, did a great job with their attack. As they got relegated, almost managed to keep them up with the tries they were scoring. But yeah, he's in Stade Francais now alongside Paul O'Connell. So we just caught up on life in Paris. 
Well, Mike, thanks a million for joining us. Um, tell us how life in Paris is. I, I guess you had the season in Oyonnax up in the mountains. It must be very different in Paris. Yeah, I suppose from a lifestyle point of view, Marie, it's, uh, it's completely different. Um, Oyonnax is a quite little town on a, not too far there between, I suppose, um, Geneva and, and Lyon. Um, quiet place to live, so to come to Paris, completely a uh, complete change. Um, I suppose for the better and for the better for my for my family and my wife and stuff and uh, you know exciting when we were coming to I suppose traditionally such a, a big French club um, but saying that I enjoyed my time in you know in X although it was short um, obviously we we got relegated but um, I suppose from an experience it was it was uh, another part of of your learning curve you know yeah absolutely how different are are the expectations then in Stade Francais, especially considering there's been quite a bit of investment there? Yeah, there's, look, there is, there's there's realism as well, though, I suppose. You look at Stade, even from last year, I suppose they they ended up three points, or we know, we ended up three points above Oynex, mm. ironically, um, last season. Um, in the previous season, I think it was 11th position, so, um, in the previous season to that, they, they, they won the top 14, you know, so, um, there has been a, a drop, um, and I think you know uh, there was a new owner that came in last year, and, and he wanted he wanted change, so um, he changed his staff, certain player personnel, and you know the structure of the club. And um, I suppose when you bring in, it's you know you'd like to Heineken Mayer, Peter De Villiers, obviously Paul O'Connell, you know they're 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 big names in in world rugby, so there's going to be that expectation, and then. Um, I suppose that it was really highlighted that Muan um, Maestri was was on his way to La Rochelle, and, and that fell through because their coach had, had been fired. A coach that was bringing him, and Gail Fiku had still a year left in, in Toulouse, and he came here, and you know there was a lot made about that, I suppose as well. So when that I suppose happens from the outside, there's there's always that that big pressure and expectation as well, you know. But within the group ourselves and, and the club within. Um, there's that realism as well, you know. That I suppose Rome wasn't built in a day. Things take time. There's new staff there. There's new pl- player personnel. Um, even in the, in the administration, there's sides of things. Things have changed, you know. So um, there's there's a, there's an overall going on. Um, and to be fair, I suppose we started the season season very well. So the expectation even grows more. Um, and we were disappointed, obviously, in the last two weeks, especially last week. We we just didn't turn up. It was. Uh, it was our worst performance by by a long way against uh, Toulouse. It was really really disappointing performance by by us. So um, so yeah. So to answer your question, the expectation is it there? It is, especially after a, a, a big start, you know, and then to yeah. to drop down. But in the top fourteen, you get that. It's I, I, I describe it being here on my sixth season here now. It's a marathon of a season over here, you know. So there will be highs and lows through, and we're probably going through a, a bit of a low at the moment, and we need to get back on the horse and, and, and start winning, you know. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned Heineken Mayer there, obviously a really experienced and um, really strong head coach. How has your role as attack and backs coach been working under him? Do you have that freedom to kind of install the ideas and philosophy that worked so well in Oynax, or are you kind of working around his his template and his ideas? Uh, we do, I suppose. We, sh- we share ideas as well, you know. Um, I suppose at the start, when the weather was good and stuff, you've, you know, you've... I suppose you've the, the conditions to, to play a bit more of an open game. Things have changed over the last couple of weeks in terms of the weather. So um, I suppose we have to play a small bit more conservative. Um, but we'd sit down and we'd trash stuff out. And, you know, it's it's great to have, I suppose, his experience there. He's, he's been around the block. He has been um, every type of coach, as, uh, as in over, over through his career. He's been a defence coach, an attack coach. Um, you know, and he's quite attack-minded. Um, so to to have his expertise and guidance is is a big thing, and as I said, it's 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 great to sit down and and, and share ideas and you know look for uh, look for the, the best solution at the end of the day and what works for you and what doesn't work for you. So um, yeah, it's been it's been great that way. Yeah, are you enjoying working alongside one of your good mates in, in Paul O'Connell? Who you mentioned there. I am indeed. I am indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, come in this season quite, I suppose. Miss them in pre-season because um, you know the, the club had had uh, were looking for 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 a lineout technician and and they mentioned it to me during the season so or during the pre-season and 
I had mentioned it to Paul and, and you know, I suppose it was it was something that was um I suppose he wanted to do. He didn't want to leave it passing by. He'd been kind of I won't say eating away, but it's something that he's been always thinking about. And he went to the World Cup, the under twenties World Cup and uh he's to me really, really enjoyed it and the club at the time weren't sure was it they were looking for someone um maybe to come in and out, you know, once a month, twice a month and I'd said it to Paul and he said, you know what, if, if, if there's a full-time thing there, I go for it. And, and, and Heineken was delighted to get Paul in. So, um, and, and the club were, you know, it's, it's, it's such a big thing to have someone like Paul in, in your staff, you know, and he just brings, you know, he's, he's well-documented, well-known. And obviously I'd known Paul for, for a long time, and the, the standards he sets. And um, it's great because, uh, you know, as a coach, you want to be challenged and he give you that and, and vice versa. So, and we'd have that kind of relationship as well. So there's, yeah, all all going well. Yeah, I heard he's 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 taking the challenge of learning French as seriously as anything. How's he getting on in that regard? The the, the psychopath, as we as we know, don't <laughs> uh, surprise me when 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 uh, when he went all out. He's actually his French is phenomenally good. Wow. Um, in such a short space of time, um, and it's well appreciated by the players as well. You know because. Obviously, the French people they'll, they'll give you that time to to adjust and, and try and pick up the language as much as you can. But um, to be fair, he's as fast as anyone I've seen pick up uh, <laughs> pick up uh, pick up a language, especially you know in in, uh, in a short space of time. So uh, yeah, he's uh, in parlez bien français. He speaks good French. <laughs> Not too bad there yourself with the accent. You you mentioned the, the new owner Hans Peter Wild who. Is a really interesting kind of character, and his family obviously have that mm. kind of fortune from the the Capri Sun kind of uh, branch of things. What's he been like? Because a lot of mm. we see a lot of owners come into French clubs and kind of take over, and kind of you'd see them in press conferences. Has he been very involved, or does he leave you t- to to do the rugby? No, he's to be fair, he's more in the background. Rugby, you know, rugby is something that's quite new to him. He got involved in German rugby a couple of years ago, um, and that's where his interest came. Um, and there was a manager over here that was involved in the club. He's a German guy, Robert Moore. He's he was quite close to Dr. Vile, so that's where it kind of uh, materialised from. And um, being honest, with you, he comes in for the games, not every game. Um, you know, he's a very very personal man. He's you know he sit down and he talk to the coaches and the players and a very very friendly man. But to be fair to him, he doesn't get involved. I suppose he trusts Heineken that point of view with his experience. Um, you know, he was looking for for a director of rugby going back to last season, and and Heineken himself obviously, um, you know, struck a relationship, and and from there on, he's kind of left everything to Heineken as 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 a director of rugby to look after the, the running of the of the club on a on a daily and weekly and monthly basis. So he's um, he's different to to other owners who will you know come in as we've seen in in the past that will come into dressing rooms and. And his teams are losing at half time, but he's not that type of 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 of, of owner as such, you know. So he, as I said, he trusts his trusts Heineken first and foremost, and then he trusts his staff to to do their job and and the players to do it as well, you know. So yeah, that's that's good to hear. As you mentioned, you've been there mm. for quite a while now, since 2013, Grenoble uh, as well. C- can you just talk us through maybe the the original decision to, to go abroad to France obviously you're working in Young Munster as, as director of rugby was it just mm-hmm. the fact that there was no opportunity professionally in Ireland that you had to, to look elsewhere yeah I suppose there was going straight to the point there's um, I, I finished playing and I, I went in as director of rugby for four years at Young Munsters and thoroughly enjoyed that and it was a full time gig as well so um, I suppose it allowed you upskill so I used to go to visit different clubs just to shadow coaches and I did a bit with the Munster A for a season or two and it's something that I, I really wanted, you know, and I suppose at the time, look, a lot of it comes to timing as well and, you know, I, I hadn't been in, I was, a, I, was a, I was a professional player but I, I came out of the professional game um, even though I was full-time in Munsters but I wanted to get back into it and um, being honest, I, I searched the world to, to, to see would there be opportunities and got on to all the contacts I had around the guys I would have played with, coaches that I would have been coached by and just sent off CVs, and fortunately enough, um, Grenoble with, with Bernard Jackman there, um, a skills coach job came available, and I came over and met with them, and it was supposed to be just kind of on a part-time basis, but fortunately enough, it ended up full-time, and then the following year, there was a backs, the backs coach that was moving on, so that came up, and um, and then for, for 
two years into that, and then myself and Bernard, my last year, did, did the attack together in in Grenoble. Yeah. Um, and then I had four years done there. I suppose I was looking for for a new challenge, and and, and went to INX for a season. Thoroughly enjoyed it, as I said, from a from a rugby and a coaching point of view. Um, obviously, we, we had when we we went down, so um, there was there was contact from from Heineken there, and um, kind of just materialised then through that to to come to to Paris. Yeah, absolutely. Is it tricky? I guess because we only see the rugby side, though. I guess you've moved your family and away to a, a mm. foreign country. How how tough is that side of things? That's that's the tough side, I suppose. We, when we left, I was two two girls. Now we one girl at, at the time. Frey, our second daughter, was born over here. But um, for my wife and, and and my wife and and Emma, my my oldest daughter had had been with me as well because I I'd moved previously when I was a player as well. So I played with Munster, went to Bourguin for a season, yeah, to France, then over to to Gloucester for a season, and then back to Ireland. So I think my wife thought the moving uh, part was finished, but. Uh, Obviously, when you're when you're when you want to coach, you want to coach professionally. Um, you know, it, it is difficult at home, I suppose, because you only have the four provinces and the national teams. So, you look at England, how many teams there is over there, and even in this championship. And you look at here, there's obviously top fourteen. There's probably two or sixteen teams of thirty professional teams, and um, and it's something I suppose I wanted to do because I did it as a player. So. Um, I personally wanted to go myself and I spoke to my wife and she was willing to, to back it. And as I said, the opportunity came up. My daughter was, a, a, was eight at the time, so it was an awkward enough age because she knew what was going on and she had her friends and her school and whatnot. So, so yeah, for them, it wasn't easy to start. Um, fortunately enough, they, they settled into Grenoble quite well. Then we had to go, then we went, sorry, to Ionax for a year and then up to Paris. So my daughter is, is, is 13 now, so she's moved around a bit. Yeah. Um, at the other side of it, she's she's uh, she's gaining good experiences and she's she's uh, fluent in the at French, which is which is a big thing. And and being honest, with you, they're they're really really happy in, in Paris and loving life here. So uh, so for them, yeah, hundred percent, it it hasn't been easy and um, the moving and stuff. But um, I suppose look, the other side, of it, they, they've embraced it in terms of the culture, living here, the language, and. That's something that was as for my daughter, she'll always have going forward, you know. So mm, yeah, I know Alan Quinlan was was talking talking you up recently and uh, about jobs in Ireland potentially, and obviously your record mm. now speaks for itself as an, as an attack coach. Is that something that you maybe have in a in a plan, or or do you just have to wait for the right opportunity in terms of getting back to Ireland? Yeah, it's just it's you you don't know. It's very hard. I think timing is a big thing. I've I've another year's contract here. We're kind of we're happy happy here as well, and I I enjoy the coaching. It's very very challenging because obviously it's in a second language. It's uh, you know you've 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 players from all different nationalities. There's so many different nationalities are coaching over here. You know, so um, there is those 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 challenges. Um, which I kind of enjoy, to be honest, John. And for the moment, I'm, I'm kind of happy enough with where I am and what I'm doing. And, you know, in, in not the end of this season, the end of the next season, I, I come off contract. And, you know, as I keep saying, it's, it's a timing thing. And, you know, fortunately, if there was maybe an opportunity, it's something that, yeah, you'd have to look at because um, I'd be lying to say if, 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 I, if I wouldn't, you know. So, but um, as I said, the focus is here at the moment. And, in rugby and professional sport, you just don't know. There's so many twists and turns. And, mm. You know, a year and a half ago, I was in Grenoble. How, how would I have known it's going to be in Paris? Oinex in between, and next thing, Paris. You know, so yeah, um, yeah it's 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 uh, it's something. Look, I, as I said, I, I I would I wouldn't deny saying that I would love to, to eventually coach at home. And yeah. I think the you know you're over here and you're upskilling yourself. And, but as I said, you're, I'm enjoying it here. So uh, yeah, so we, we, we'll see what way it pans out. See what's down the line, all right? J- just to wrap up, I guess in the mm. in the shorter term for this season with Stad, you're back into Challenge Cup against uh, Ospreys this weekend, and top fourteen, hoping to get mm-hmm. back on track beyond that. What will be a good season in, in your eyes as a coaching group? Um, in the champ or in the Amling Cup, unfortunately, we lost the first game at home, which um, put a bit of pressure on us. I think we were realistic in terms of we we, we there was twenty three players released um, last season and we we brought in twelve so we caught we reduced our squad um, sufficiently so um, I think from a point of view of depth it's something that is going to catch us for both competitions and we've realised that so um, 
from a point of view, I suppose, look, the, the, the big goal will be to try and get into that barrage, as they call it, the top six, um, yeah. which will give you a, a European spot next year. Um, and um, it's, it's going to be it's going to be a huge challenge, I suppose. You look at it this year, it's, it's much tighter there this year, you know, between, I think it's third position and also eight, there's something like six points. Uh, fourth, there's only three points between us. And so in terms of the league, um, I think it's going to be a battle right to the end of the season. There's a lot of teams in that kind of Clermont are, are pulling away. They have an ex- incredibly uh, deep squad. Did a very disappointing season last year, purely down to the injuries that, that happened to them. Um, and they've really come back this year with a bang. They're, they're, you know, they're playing incredible rugby. They're, they're starting to pull a bit. Toulouse are a very consistent team. We saw them, and we obviously saw the full force yeah. last week. And, I'm sure at home you saw them against Leinster and, and Bats, you know, they're, they're kind of getting back into where they were maybe a, couple, a number of years back. So um, you have two or three games. You look at Montpellier, who have a hugely deep squad there. They're actually their ninth place here. So it shows how competitive it is here, you know, especially in around that, that mid-table um, between kind of ninth, tenth and sixth. And it's going to be a, a battle all the way, you know. But yeah, look, I wouldn't lie. That's, that's, I suppose, our priority to try and Make that and uh, and then I suppose look try and help and and you know grow the club back to where it was a number of years ago and that's that's the objective um, and that's kind of the goal from from Doctor Vile as well as 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 the owner of the club you know so um, yeah yeah well I hope things go really well over the next couple of weeks and the forum picks up and uh, best luck down down the line as well Mike thanks a million for chatting to us great stuff thanks Mary good to talk to you. The Heineken Champions Cup returns this weekend. I'm excited, guys. Are you? Actually, really am. Uh, <laughs> that sounded sarcastic, but I, I didn't mean to. Um, what are we thinking? I'd like it, it, might start with Leinster, the reigning champions, uh, looking to bounce back from defeat. Uh, well, I don't know. Bounce back is maybe a bit strong. Like, is it? Then they were always going to take a, a loss at some point. A learning experience. I'm sure that it'll make them more dangerous. Like, there's nothing to worry about there, really, is there? Yeah, I think they'll be extremely determined to avoid um, a similar outcome and they'll be more aware than ever that that's what everyone is going to be um, raising their game to against Leinster. The, the, the reigning champions talked about as one of the best teams in the world, uh, hyped up by us in the media, even beyond what they're comfortable with. <laughs> so for everyone, it's it's a massive game. Like Toulouse, it was, it was just remarkable, the celebrations down there at the final whistle. Um, it was an incredible atmosphere as well. Um, and while Bath, you wouldn't think, have the form or even the, the squad to, to challenge them, they'll certainly be at their very best, I would imagine. This is a great time of year because you have the back-to-back element, obviously, and it's always really interesting seeing how things change in a week, how the mental dynamic of it changes, who, depending on who's won the first game. You so often see people go away and win, then come home and struggle. Um, and that side of it's always really fascinating. For Leinster, obviously, the kind of frontliners coming back in, some of them haven't played for, for quite a few weeks, so... Um, the challenge there is just getting that cohesion going again. Uh, it hasn't really uh, kind of stimmied them in, in the in the past, and you would imagine those guys now up to speed, nearly halfway through the season, will, will adapt in quite well. I'd expect Leinster to win that that game. Bath were not particularly impressive again last weekend against Sale. Kind of struggled to a seven-all draw at home, um, and they've really they've really uh, kind of failed to to shine consistently. In, in the in the Premiership, interesting to see see their attack against Leinster now, and and some of the ideas that Gervin Dempsey has brought there, uh, a bit of similarity in, in terms of their attacking model and some of the set piece uh, plays as well. But yeah, you'd back Leinster to definitely get back on the horse and and not just second pool win. It should be reasonably straightforward, Andy. Do you reckon? I well, I think so. I think um, I think Bath are a bit of a disaster zone. Like I when I. The irony is they could be one of the great European clubs. They were one of the great European clubs and professionalism hasn't suited them. And um, even I was there in 06, we had three head coaches in that season. We started with John Connolly, who went, uh, he took the Aussie job. Uh, Michael Foley came in and kind of made a mess of things and was sacked in January and Brian Ashton took over, who left in May. Um, so they, they're they not particularly uh, stable. 
not sure what they want. It doesn't mean they can't make, they can't produce on a given day, on, a, on any given Sunday, to use the cliche. But at the moment, I don't think they have the quality or the personnel that compares to a Leinster team when it's hot. And uh, and based on the performance last week, which was turgid, kind of seven-all draw, I, I see it being relatively straightforward. Yeah, Ulster in Parky Scarlets, uh, obviously a, we had a bit of a precursor to this game a couple of weeks ago in the Pro 14. Um, where do Ulster need to change things in order to improve the result this time around, Murray? Well, Scarlet's going to be absolutely desperate. They've obviously lost both pool games, so they're literally paying for their lives at home. I, I, they haven't particularly impressed me this season so far. I think they've struggled, again, to get consistently their best team onto the pitch, and they've missed some key guys through injuries. So potentially it is a, a chance for, for Ulster to pull off an upset. Having said that, Ulster themselves have struggled in the last couple of weeks just with finishing the chances they've created and it's been a consistent issue across the course of the season their discipline at times has, has been poor and it's those kind of sloppy um, sloppy kind of switch offs mentally that are, that are really costing them the, the work rate we've talked about it so often is always there you know even when in a losing losing game they're always competing right until the end but they just haven't found um, that kind of edge that that's going to open up their attack that's going to give Jacob Stockdale the opportunities he gets in an Ireland jersey um, and their pack while good actually last weekend against Cardiff Blues hasn't consistently uh, applied pressure at the set piece they've had such big issues at the line out at times and, and the mall hasn't got going either so I just can't see them finding that consistency of performance to to really trouble the, the Scarlets away from home um, and we spoke about it at the, at the start of the season it would have been a big big achievement if they got out of that pool so I'd expect the Scarlets to, to notch a win. You reckon the same, Andy? Uh, yeah, well, I think so. I think the Scarlets have had more frequently in, in recent history, they've had higher intensity games that mattered. They've been in knockout European games. They've won a Pro 14. Um, so when it comes to a backs against the wall, you know, result is paramount type game. And they are always, but like really, really matters in this in this case. Um, I think the experience of those higher intensity games and the regularity of those knockout competition games they've played in the recent two seasons will, I think, will serve them well against the kind of a less experienced, growing Ulster group. Yeah, Munster against the top fourteen champions—a very familiar fixture, Murray. Yeah, it is. Uh, these two teams have played each other more than anyone in Europe, actually. Um, Castor, an interesting case because. Over the last couple of years, you pretty much could bank on beating them, certainly when they, they come to visit Ireland. They've actually, for the first time, and they've been pretty open about this, they've kind of said, like, listen, we didn't really care about the European competition in the last few years, but we actually do now. And you probably saw that with the win over Exeter um, last time out. They were at home, obviously, in that game, but you saw the commitment levels across the 80 minutes that you probably haven't seen from Cast for a number of years in Europe. So certainly they're coming with a with a bit more of a threat. They they were poor last weekend. They lost to Agen at home um, late on in the game, a, a block down uh, box kick from, from Cockett uh, to, to grab that win. Um, so not the best form, but uh, Munster looked really good against Edinburgh. Like it was a weak team and we shouldn't get too carried away by that. Um, you know, people are maybe getting a bit excited by, by Munster doing that. If they do it in Europe again, if they have that fluidity in their attack, if they have Chris Farrell adding that completely new dimension with his handling as well as his physical threat, Conor Murray's decision-making back around the breakdown, uh, hopefully Joey Carberry is fit to to feature alongside him and, and get that halfback partnership working. The back three is in really good form and Mike Haley, having had a quiet start um, and we heard so much from the players about this guy in training is is brilliant. He's been excellent at sale, obviously, in the past as well. He finally looks to be hitting his um, his best kind of form and, and really exciting player on the ball. Um, so there's lots there to like. Ty Byrne as well has added a new element to the pack. He's been a bit of a game changer. The turnover threat he, he offers as well. So when you look at that f- first 15 on paper, it's extremely exciting for Munster. And if they can keep everyone fit, and bring that fluidity we saw last weekend into Europe, then it's really exciting times under Johan van Graan. Yeah, we have to give away a book, a copy of Behind the Lines, Volume 2. Uh, this week it's going to Jacek Strzeski, uh, who may or may not be a Munster fan, but he asks the question, is there still a place for Chris Farrell in Joe Schmidt's squad? I would say, based on the fact, uh, or if you were to base it solely on his performance against Edinburgh, in which he wrecked lives, uh, there very much is uh, space for Chris Farrell and Joe Sch- Schmidt's squad. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, he's like he's singularly can change Munster's approach this week. Going over to Castro, for example, just just he's he's um, physically, like I said, he 
he seems to have like a different genetic footprint <laughs> to most Irish mm. players. Like Henshaw is a stocky Irish looking guy, you know, who's well built and works hard. And Ringrose is very, you know, a slim Irish guy. We just don't tend to produce six foot five athletes who are that fast and that skillful and that physical. Like he can pass brilliantly off both hands. You can run your backline plays around him as a second distributor where he never takes contact if you don't want him to. But if he's going to go and take contact, he's going to probably be destructive. He can offload. Um, he seems very humble and intelligent from a, as a character. People seem to love him. So I think he's 100% right in the forefront of Joe's mind and he's probably trying to work out a way to fit him into the Irish World Cup squad with the likes of Aki, uh, Henshaw and Ringroads probably as shoe-ins based on November. Very interesting to see um, does he get a start for example in the Six Nations in one of the games ahead of one of those guys and and Joe tries to really create competition there. Yeah and Joe mentioned him a couple of times straight in November even at the end last press conference of the kind of month he says you know I have a couple of guys come back he mentioned O'Brien, Conor Murray and Chris Farrell was the third one. He's 25 now but I would think that in Joe Schmidt's eyes, there's massive room for him to to mm-hmm. get towards his ceiling. He's 25. He's played in top 14, which uh, he was working with uh, Mike Prendergast and, and, and Bernard Jackman. They were really positive influence on him, but he's only had one international cap, you know. Um, I would say Joe Schmidt sees major uh, scale for improving his skills, improving his defensive decision making, um, his confidence even in how he imposes himself physically. So that's a really exciting prospect for Munster and for Ireland. The fact that He's probably got a lot of still untapped potential. Super. Is he getting a book for that question? Well, yes. Uh, Jacek <laughs> Strasevsky is getting a book. Uh, good question. It was a good question. There were some other ones as well. My apologies to Dan J. Brady, official Connor Mackey, Brendan Dot Spearin, and Mark Mark One Layden. They all had good questions this week. Maybe next week. Well, we'll finish with your predictions, guys, because, I mean, I know you kind of touched upon it or alluded to how you figured the games will go this weekend, but you are, of course, in heated competition with each other. Um, so let's go with the Leinster. We're going to have to talk bonus points as well. How, just how heated is it going? Like, I have no idea what the score is. He it talks, can't be that heated. He talks. He, he talks. <laughs> off about you when you're not here, Andy. Um, <laughs> we'll tally it up for next week. Okay. Yeah, we need to, we need to go back <laughs> yeah, over a few podcasts. Uh, okay, Leinster in the wreck. Andy, we'll, we'll have to take bonus points into consideration here, I think, because I, otherwise... Yeah, Leinster to win with the try bonus. Uh, I'm going the same, sorry. Okay, Ulster in Parky Scarlets. Are they definitely in Parky Scarlets, by the way? Oh, yeah, I yeah. think, I actually think... I'm going to... I'm going to Oh, you're going? tomorrow, so <laughs> I, I sure hope it is. All right, okay. Um, no, I think Tlenetli to win with a try bonus. Ooh. I think Ulster might nick a losing bonus point, I'll say. Okay, but that actually doesn't necessarily differentiate from Andy's it's a different answer okay and Munster <laughs> at home it's Munster at home to cast isn't it yeah yeah. I think yes Munster to win that's all no bonus points I'll say bonus point okay interesting well thank you gents as per usual Cheers. Andy thanks for your time thank Cheers, you Murray. guys uh, a reminder to you guys at home that if you want to get more from the game join Heineken Rugby Club whose members enjoy exclusive rewards like match tickets more visit heinekenrugbyclub.com and remember to enjoy Heineken responsibly and visit drinkaware.e as well. Enjoy the rugby over the weekend and we will chat to you next Thursday. All the best. Thank you.